And so today's scripture brings us the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Just the type of pick-me-up y'all were looking for, right? <laughs> but besides the gruesome details that Mark uh, chooses not to spare us from, this is an objectively great story. It has all the elements of a drama. It has the ominous beginning of a king hearing about a new prophet stirring up trouble. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. It's got mystery. No one seems to know who this new prophet, this new character is. Whether he's just another prophet like one of the old prophets, or if he's Elijah come back, which means uh, trouble for those in power, especially because when Elijah comes back, that means God is coming soon and with the winnowing fork and uh, lots of other uh, uh, tough things. Or is it, as Herod believes, maybe his conscience coming up on him, that it's John the Baptist come back to life? And if you're reading Mark just straight through, uh, you would do a double take at this point because uh, we didn't know John the Baptist was dead, much less that he had been brought back to life. Uh, from the jump of Mark, we find out that he had been arrested, uh, but we didn't know anything about the circumstances. And so at the first three, uh, three verses, guessing about who this new prophet is and what it means, we get the backstory on how John the Baptist was killed. The scripture says he's King Herod, uh, but that's actually giving him a little more credit than he deserves. This is actually Herod Jr., son of King Herod, who we talk about at Christmas time. That King Herod died in 4 BC, the same year that Jesus was born. They got the count off a little bit, uh, four years before uh, was where we think uh, Jesus was actually born, when. But when Herod Sr. died, his kingdom was in, uh, was in a tumult, a tumultuous time, and they split up the kingdom into three tetrarchs. So he's one of the tetrarchs. Uh, of Galilee and uh, Perea. But anyway, we have Herod Jr., who left his first wife for Herodias, who also happened to be his brother's wife. Uh, I told you, it's got, it's got some gushy details. John the Baptist makes uh, Herodias angry by calling out Herod for this uh, break of uh, Jewish law and custom, and also just a uh, break of common decency. You don't, shouldn't take your brother's wife. Uh, but fast forward to the rewind to a part of uh, where Herod is throwing this party. Herod Antipas is throwing a party trying to impress the leading figures in Galilee. Uh, and his new wife's daughter does a dance that somehow pleases Herod, which is weird. Uh, and a strange thing that somehow in a weird sensual kind of pleasure for Herod is this daughter stepdaughter, who also might be called Herodias Jr. or something. Uh, but anyway, the daughter uh, goes back to her mother for advice. And of course, Herodias Sr. instructs her daughter to ask for the head of the prophet who had been insulting her. I see Sierra's giving me a confused look. I know it's got a lot of twists and turns in this story. And now the story appears uh, at this point to make Herod look like he is begrudgingly killing John the Baptist. The, script, the scripture takes time to mention that even though he didn't understand much of what John was saying, he enjoyed listening to him. 
I uh, considered titling this sermon, actually, that even when the oppressor says they like you, it doesn't mean they won't cut your head off. <laughs> it was a little too long for the byline, I think. Uh, but being the good husband and stepfather that uh, Herod was, uh, and not wanting to be embarrassed in front of the wealthy and powerful friends, Herod obliged and had John's head delivered to Herodias on a platter. John's disciples came and take his body for burial. And shortly after that, uh, Mark jumps right back into Jesus' ministry, the feeding of the 5,000. So this is the text for us this morning, the good news for us this morning. And if you will pray for me as uh, I try to uh, see where God is talking to us in this time, in this place. Background on this text, as uh, my mom uh, alluded already, that it is plopped in the middle of Jesus' growing ministry. Right before this, you see Jesus has gone to Nazareth and been rejected, but his ministry is growing anyway. Uh, he's sending his disciples out. Uh, he's franchising his ministry. People are doing it for him uh, in other places, and is really growing. And on the other end is this feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. Uh, so he's got a lot going for him at this stage of Mark. And it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, story because it takes place in all three of the synoptic uh, Gospels, Ma Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And even though Mark is the oldest Gospel we know and is usually the most uh, concise and to the point and doesn't flower things up, uh, this is actually the longest version of the story. So for some reason, Mark decides to spend 15 verses explaining this beheading. And it's one of the stories in the Gospels that we also have uh, an outside uh, source, uh, an outside source in uh, by the historian Josephus, who is a Roman uh, Jewish citizen who was writing the history of the times and also happens to mention this story of, Jesus being, of, of John the Baptist being killed. And John the Baptist was, a, you know, indisputably a righteous guy. He says, uh, Josephus, the historian says about John, Now many came, people came in crowds to him, for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared that the great influence John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise the rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything that he should advise, thought it best to put him to death. In this way, he might prevent any mischief John might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. So from the scripture and from uh, the history of Josephus, we have at least three things that I think we can learn uh, from John and about John. And three things that we share in common with John the Baptist. The first is that we were all born with this gift called life and with a mission in life, a destiny, something that we were put here to do. And as we know, destinies are funny things and they change and morph, uh, it seems like, each day. But we've given something to do here on this earth. And like John, we're all going to die as well, uh, if you haven't figured that part out. And for those who have seen Coco, who's seen Coco? Uh, you're going to die twice, actually. You're going to die uh, when the last person forgets you. That's really creative. I love that beautiful, colorful image of heaven in that uh, movie. 
And then third, that we work not knowing how it's going to end. John the Baptist's ministry is all about making the way plain, opening the highway for God's work to happen. And that we are called to work in that same way, thinking about who's next, who's coming after us, how can we make it better for them. And so those three things are certain in our life. We're going to die one day, and while we're here, we have a mission, we have a purpose called life and love that the Creator put us here for, and we won't see it completed in our time. And from the text, we also learn at least one thing about Herod and from Herod, that all too often matters of life and death are at the whims of those in power. Whimsical decisions of people in power can mean life or death for others. It's a twisted morality where when you get into that place of power that your reputation and your ego becomes more important than people's lives. And even when leaders want to do right, often the climb towards power requires compromises that chain them or chain us to that power. What it takes to gain the power of influence over others is the exact thing that will end up shackling those in power. It's what uh, Reinhold Niebuhr talked about uh, over a half century ago after World War II called the irony of American history. That America had grown uh, so powerful and had created this hydrogen bomb, an atomic bomb, that now is the most powerful uh, superpower in the world. But that power was actually the feeblest form of power because it depended on fear of a bomb. It didn't, it didn't depend on goodwill. It didn't depend on any love or uh, positive uh, relationships. All, they, all we had was the power of a bomb. And the fact that this text falls right in the middle of Jesus' growing ministry is powerful to me as we think about how uh, John the, the beheading of John the Baptist might speak to us today. So why would Mark spend so much time telling this story, this beheading story, when we have miracles to talk about? We have great victories for the people to talk about. And when I think about where we are right now, we have actually been living through some amazing years and times. Might not feel like it all the time. But we've seen mass movements move across this country that we shouldn't take for granted. We saw Occupy and the anti-globalization movements that opened our eyes that another world is possible. The powerful and incredible creativity of Black Lives Matter that has changed this nation completely. The power of the dreamers. The fact that marriage equality has come. It seemed like it really wouldn't have happened in my lifetime. And then overnight, it almost, it's here in reality. Me Too, the Me Too movement has changed things. There will be more people safe, more women, and men safe from harassment, even as we know it still is endemic to our society. Fight for 15 is the union movement, the most exciting part of the labor movement that has probably happened since the 60s and 70s. If you can imagine that it's fight for 15 in a union is the fast food workers, but if they actually got a union, overnight they would be the largest union in many states. So you would have uh, low-income, working-class-led unions that would be the most powerful unions. Can you imagine that? If it happened overnight, if we got, if McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, just those three were unionized. 
And so we have these exciting things, just like when Jesus' movement was building. But at the same time, we know that on Friday we marked the fifth year anniversary of the Zimmerman verdict. For many of you will remember where you were and who you were with when the non-guilty judgment came down for George Zimmerman and the murder of Trayvon Martin. It was like a gut punch that they couldn't even get him with manslaughter after he chased down a 17-year-old kid and shot him. Four years ago, we had Eric Garner here in New York City. Seems every summer there's something that happens that shocks and disturbs us. In August, it'll be four years since Mike Brown. Three summers ago, it was Mother Emanuel in Charleston, Sandra Bland in Texas. Two years ago, it was the Pulse nightclub in Orlando on June 12th, the anniversary of the assassination of Medgar Evers in Mississippi over 50 years before. A month later, we saw Philando Castile and Alton Sterling murdered by the police within 24 hours. Both of these situations were recorded. We heard recordings of how it was perpetuated and no one lost their job, no one has been put in jail. You look around the world, you see things in Brazil even where uh, an exciting young Afro-Brazilian leader, Mario Franco, was assassinated just this year. Palestinians being sniper, sniped by soldiers, activists. We have Las Vegas this year, Parkland. Just last week, we see attacks on the rights of same-gender-loving couples to adopt. And of course, we see children locked up and separated from their parents. And whenever you hear it, people say that this is not us, that we're better than this, you have to question them. Separating families to steal from Rat Brown is as American as apple pie, cherry pie. That this is who we are. This has been a part of our history. It's true our world that in our world, God's world and our lives are looking pretty grim at this time full of suffering, and that's why I think the John the Baptist story is for us today. It's a story that shows God moving even in the midst of unspeakable terror and hate and murder. That God is moving and active in every age and is today all around us. And I believe that, that even while it seems we sit in the midst of the shadow of evil, that God is with us. And I found as we were away, I was able to read uh, John Dominic Crossan's book, uh, God and Empire, which helped me think about this uh, story. Uh, I think there's at least two things that can be useful from uh, his work that compared the Roman Empire to the American Empire today, and that the resistance that happened through Jesus and others in the Roman Empire and how that could be applied to today. 
The first point that uh, Crossan makes is that this is a turning point for Jesus, the, the beheading of John the Baptist. That uh, the, there's two traditions that go throughout the Bible. Uh, the first tradition being the Noah tradition. It's that you uh, save the just ones and destroy the rest. Uh, that the, the condemnation of God, the judgment of God, is to uh, rid the world of all those who are sinners and start over. Uh, and then shortly after that, uh, don't work out so well, uh, we have the Abrahamic tradition, where you save the just ones who are called to, who are chosen to choose others. Uh, we get that confused, that chosen people are uh, chosen because others are not chosen. But you get chosen by God so that you can choose others. And just because you're chosen doesn't mean that everyone else isn't chosen too. And so the just ones, the few for the many, to save the many, to bring the, the many into God's kingdom here on earth. So these are the two traditions, and, and John Dominic Crossan says that John the Baptist represents more of that first tradition. You know, make way uh, for the Lord, uh, for the winnowing fork, for the chef that's going to uh, clear out the evildoers. It's an apocalyptic uh, use that gets uh, as far as that God's going to start over the world. You know, that God is tired of all these sinners and is just going to start over. Uh, moving towards an Abrahamic tradition of, that, of saving the world and that we are in it right now. Uh, it's the same difference between imminence and presence. So the imminence is John the Baptist saying, God is coming, God is coming, he's going to save it, he's going to fix it. Uh, the, they say that it's uh, the great cosmic cleanup of God. But after the tragedy of John the Baptist, we see Jesus focusing more and more on the presence of God. That God has to be in the midst. If we're going to build a movement, if we're going to be God's people, we have to see God working right now. And yes, there are times for, the, for that first tradition of calling out uh, empire, of saying that it might implode. Indeed, Dr. King's final sermon, he called Coretta Scott King in his last week before he died and said that his sermon at Ebenezer was going to be, America may go to hell. There's times to call uh, in this tradition that the larger they get, the harder they fall, that this nation must be reminded that empires, just like troubles, don't last always. But the problem with that tradition of Noah is that God tried it, and it didn't work out that well. They, they tried to start over, get rid of everyone, and within a couple years, they were sinning again and uncovering each other's nakedness, uh, whatever that means. And, uh, and we also know that if we start getting rid of all the sinners, we'd be really lonely. Um, <laughs> and we probably wouldn't be here ourselves. So these two traditions that uh, we're called to, that first the, about the eminence of God, proclaiming that God is coming, but actually God is right here with us right now. If we live into that understanding that we are not waiting on God, but that God is waiting on us, knowing that despite how it seems God is working in the midst right now, then we'll have a reorientation towards the evils and the problems that we seek. Crossing calls this collaborative eschatology. There's a fun word. Eschatology, all it means is uh, words about the last things, the, the final days, the ultimate meaning, the end times, otherwise. A collaborative eschatology is what we sang about this morning, wade in the water. Wade in the water. What do you do? What's going to happen when we wade in the water? 
God's going to trouble the water. It's collaborative. It's hand in hand. It's not one or the other. It's putting these two things that seem to be contradicting an all-powerful, all-loving God and human action and agency together. No better way than the spiritual could. That wasn't in the script, so I got a little offside here. Uh, and also when we see, start to face these things that seem intractable, crossing calls us to see about a distinction between illness and disease. I asked my dad, who's a doctor, that if this has any medical uh, relevancy, and he said, not really, but it's a great uh, you know, metaphor. Uh, that the disease is the source of the pain. The disease is where the pain comes from, where the suffering comes from, and the illness is the social, communal, uh, psychological impact of the pain that we see happening all around it. And when we see things that seem intractable and unredeemable, uh, when you think about those kids at the border who have had irreparable harm done to them, they won't get those, that time back. Their development, the trauma that will be in that uh, separation, you can't fix. Or you think about how deep and pervasive racism and patriarchy and class structures are in this country every time you think you've gotten around it, even in interpersonal relationships. There it is, again. Or now we see the Russians, I try not to think about them too much, but they're not only stealing emails, but they are in our actual electoral computer systems in states like Florida. It might be helpful at times like this to start thinking about diseases and illnesses because sometimes the disease is not going to get cured. And we still have to do the work of healing. And that's what Jesus' ministry, pivoting after John the Baptist, is headed towards. And we know that this can work because we do it here every week at Middle. That's what the church is. And that's what this movement is. That you can heal evil even while the scourge is there. The American disease of racism, we think and hope and pray that we can find a cure for patriarchy, for sexism. We just shout that maybe the orange man in D.C. will be pushed out and all of his supporters, and then there won't be any more racism. But we know, uh, regardless of what party is in there, we would need to be fighting. We know that when we come here each Sunday, we don't think we're going to fix it once and for all. We come to this place, to middle each and every Sunday, not because we think we can do that, because week in and week out, it is here that we experience healing for ourselves and our families and communities. We pray and sing praises to God and we begin to imagine a different reality. We come to get a glimpse of God's wonderful dream and once you have a glimpse of God's wonderful dream, it's hard to let it go. In this place where young people's neurons are being oriented towards a different type of world, where our elders are on new adventures, where white people can start to construct a more humane and human identity that isn't based in our power or the false ideology and theology of white supremacy, where people of color and everyone can come and be their distinct and unique self, where Kaede can sing from Japan, can sing Louis Armstrong, 
and make it our own and make love out of that connection across time and space and culture. We do that here. We practice that here each Sunday so that we can be healed even as we know that this work won't be done in our lifetimes. Each of us is a seemingly, like John the Baptist, randomly plopped down in history. We wonder why this time for me, God. Randomly plopped down in this epic narrative of God's love and God's salvific work in the world. And yet God has entrusted us each with this gift. We each have been given the opportunity to make the way plain for God in the entire world. Yes, we die and we won't see the end of the work ourselves, but we have been given a gift called life. And God is waiting on us to live it more fully. God is waiting us to find resurrection to be realized, to turn those things that are upside down, right side up, to mend what has been broken, set at liberty those who are held captive in the world. Yes, God is moving and active in every age, and today is all around us. God is waiting on us to find the joy in the everydayness, even as the shadows persist. Amen.